truth is meant to save you first, and the comfort comes afterwards. George Bernanos. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. Welcome back, everyone. Again, we're going to be giving you a glimpse into the Magnus Fellowship, this time with Dr. Deal Hudson's course, George Bernanos, The Man and His Work. George Bernanos is one of the greatest Catholic novelists of the 20th century. He's up there with Unset, O'Connor, Percy, and Chesterton. So listen to this first course of Deal Hudson's eight-week course and learn why. And of course, if you want to keep watching the course, just go to the Magnus Fellowship Archives, donate $25 a month, and you are all set to watch any of the archived courses. Enjoy. Hello, everybody. If you don't know, I'm Deal Hudson, and this is going to be a course, uh, our third course in a row about a great Catholic writer. You may recall we did Flannery O'Connor, and we did Sigrid Unset, and now we're doing a French Catholic writer named George Bernanos. Now, I just, in general terms, Flannery O'Connor is the closest to Bernanos. Uh, I can, we can name all the other great Catholic writers. And in terms of what Bernanos does best in his novels, it's very much in the spirit of Flannery O'Connor. Couple of reasons why. You get some pretty awful people in the novels of Bernanos. You get uh, you get despair, you get violence, uh, you get the dark side of human nature. And one the thing that's going to be uh, a real challenge to some of you is when we go to read a Catholic novel or a Christian novelist. Because Bernanos is really not someone who needs to appeal to only Catholics. I mean, it's not it's not a churchy kind of writing or a churchy kind of storytelling. Uh, how is it? So we've got B, what's your name? B Wood? Brittany. Brittany. How are you doing? I'm in, I'm in Scotland, okay? Just so you know. Uh, so when, when you go to a, re, a, a religious writer, it's just like Flannery used to say about religious writers. You know, you expect instant uplift. You expect, you expect to feel like you're in a, entering into an, uh, an imaginary world of salvation and redemption and miracles, and that's not happening in George Bernanos. Uh, you're in a way you're approaching God through the dark, as dark as it can get. Uh, and 
I find it personally very not not only a compelling, but also uh, illustrative of the human condition in a way that a lot of other really profound Christian writers don't. They just don't get there because they are not willing to plumb the, the worst side of human nature, the reality of fallenness. And when you, when you get so close to the marrow of human sinfulness and fallenness, the need for redemption, the need for salvation, is just become so immense you know, there's there's no sort of good guy, anonymous Christian, Carl Rahner would call him. There, you know, there's no, there's really no humanism at all in Berninos in this sense. Hum, humans are totally unreliable in the world of George Berninos. We could talk a little bit about why that his world is is this way, but. You don't want to mistake what is severe. The, the man himself was not severe. The man himself, well, I'll show you some photos, uh, was, was a bon vivant. He was, as a young man, he was a political activist, rebel, got thrown in jail, protesting. Uh, a little later, he was a dandy, a French dandy. I mean, he would dress up like me, you know, and uh, he would. There, we'll see one picture of him, you know, all dude up in his beautiful handmade French clothing. And uh, the idea of the dand, French dandy is a very uh, important one in French culture. Proust was a dandy and... Uh, a lot of other French writers and even uh, celebrities, politicians. You could, if you if you look at French films of the late silent era and the early talkie, you'll see you'll run into the dandy quite a bit. Now, speaking of that, uh, there have been three or four, depending on on how you regard them, great films made based on the Berninos novels. Uh, a lot of people look at the film Diary of a Country Priest, directed by the great film director, Catholic, ex, very explicitly Catholic, non-apologetic, Robert Bresson, uh, as the greatest spiritual movie ever made. And I don't know, have any of you ever seen the film Diary of a Country Priest? I'm holding my hand up. Nobody else? Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. We got to do some film school here. Okay. Just say uh, the novel we're going to read first, Mouchette, uh, is available on the Criterion Collection app. So if you want to join Criterion for a couple of months, you'll be able to watch Mouchette which is, again, another Robert Bresson film. And you get a, uh, I mean, it is in nature in the raw. 
then also the first novel Berninoff wrote, Under the Son of Satan, uh, was made by Maurice Pillet, uh, starring Gérard Depardieu as a priest. And the thing is, you think of Depardieu as, as often a comedian, a lover, and so forth. I mean, he plays a priest, and he plays the priest under the son of Satan. That can be seen on, on two apps, one called Mubi, M-U-B-I, and another called Cohen Film Media, which you can watch through Amazon. And I'll, I'll refer from time to time to these films, all of which I watched, again, to get ready for you guys. And uh, it will really it will in, help to put uh, images on what we're going to discuss and read. Now, how many of you have ever read Diary of a Country Priest? Okay, so those you guys know a little bit what to expect. Uh, how many of you have read any other Berenanos novels, Mouchette? or Under the Sun of Satan, or they stop there. I'm I mean, about halfway that, through Bouchette. It's good, isn't it? It's intense, yeah. Yeah, intense, yeah. It's, you know, good. Now, the, the book, Mouchette, is available on Amazon in a nice New York Times edition. Uh, the other, now, I need everybody to post their address so I can put in the mail copies of Monsieur Ween uh, if you haven't got it. Because I I collect you got I collected a bunch of copies. So it's the last one we're gonna do. So we got a month for me to mail it to you. Let's sort of get going. And um I am going to open uh, some notes here and uh there we go let me keep them over here to the side so that i can see everybody you know any writer exists in a historical context i mean there are thousands of books written about elizabethan england for example to understand shakespeare uh, in terms of Flannery, there are all kind of books about Flannery O'Connor's South to understand her. And Siri Dunset is Kristen Lovren's daughter is all about medieval Norwegian history. And in the case of Berninos, it's it's really doubly or triply important to, that you understand the kind of background and history that shaped his mind in his faith. And I want to repeat, you will never, re in a world of literature and fiction, run into anyone who is more completely Christian, completely Catholic. There is, like I say, there's no mediating 
sort of boundary of a kind of a reasonable humanism. I mean, this is this is a guy who went to mass every day, every day. This is a guy who read his breviary every day. The man that got on his knees every day of his life. I mean, after about age 20. And uh, he, uh, for him, France was a Catholic country. It was nothing other than a Catholic country. It, uh, his protest in general is a protest against the loss of faith in, of France. And for better or for worse, during the 19th and early 20th century, a lot of leading intellectuals, leading politicians, so forth, they all would, their attitude was, if you don't, if you're not engaged in the faith, you, you are not engaged in even being French. So you have a, uh, a, a nationalism, which is tied closely, I mean, really not even closely, they're identified with faith. And uh, so I'll tell you what, let's look, let's first look at a few photos of the man. How about that? Uh, this is, I'm not sure why he's wearing a uniform here, but he did go to seminary, you know, the kind of seminary that starts Catholic seminary that starts in like seventh grade. And this may have been, you know, something that he wore ceremonially there. Um, here you have the you, inside of the Bernanos, looks like the office of the father, mom. And you can see how richly decorated it is. So he, he grew up well to do. And, um, there's no question who he's closer to in that photograph. <laughs> now, he, this unusual photograph, this is young George with two of his seminary professors. He kind of makes you what prompted that particular photograph. He's probably critiquing their chess play. You can, you can really see the intelligence and the uh the life the vibrancy the confidence you can see it um and here you have again the smartly dressed young man smoking a fire i have pictures of me you know stuffing cigars in my son's mouth too uh so i particularly like this picture and uh I mentioned the dandy. There it is. Notice the knee-length leather boots, smartly shined, the cane, the, the derby hat, uh, the morning coat. Notice see how this, you only see this at weddings now, the morning coat. I really need one of those, I do. Um, high collar. All the way up above his, you know, to his chin. Can't really tell what kind of tie he has on, but you can see it. 
He was part of, at least for a time, the smart young 1920s Parisian set. I mean, he he was a uh, not a young man, but a, a young, little older in his 30s when when Paris was the Paris of the 20s. And you know that how uh, special that is. Here is uh, Bernard Nelson in his military in, uh, uniform. He got engaged while he was uh, fighting in World War I. And she, Jean, was a direct descendant of Joan of Arc. And Joan of Arc is uh, always a guiding light in the life of George Bernanos. And so I guess when he met her, and she was quite lovely and quite pious, uh, and, and him having written about Joan of Arc, even as a young man, I guess that was a, that was a done deal. He lived uh, most of his later life in Brazil on a farm. Here he is on his horse. This is his home in Brazil. I mean, he was out in the jungle. He was out in the jungle. Uh, why he's in Brazil, we'll discuss later. And here he is, dead. They call this the death mask. Died young. Uh, we'll talk about more about that. Okay, so that is gives you some ideas of the picture of Bernanos. And I'll stop sharing. Now we're going to, before we sort of examine the bi biographical chronology and interrupt me to ask anything. Uh, as you know, my normal way of conducting class is not this way, lecturing. I start conversations. And so this is sort of unusual in terms of my, my teaching. Uh, I'll, I'll do a little 10 or 15, maybe even a 15-minute thing, but usually not this. Go ahead, Stan. You know, where, where do you think that sympathy for, for priests specifically came from? I mean, there, there, you can hardly read Diary of a Country Priest and not think, here is a guy who knew exactly what a conscientious, sensitive priest was going through. Where, where did that come from in his, in his upbringing, do you think? You know, priests, you know, and one, one, I wrote, I read about six books about Baranos to get ready for this class. One of the great books on Baranos is by Hans Urs von Balthasar, who wrote Baranos, an ecclesial tradition, translated by my good friend, Rasmo Leva. And uh, it's, in, it, it is, the best overall study of Bernanos. And it has, one thing about that book, it has a lot of translated passages that aren't available anywhere else. Uh, 
again, now, if you go back to what I said about Berenanosu's, his world is black, it's black and white. There is the church, and there is there is human fallenness. And the only answer to the fallenness is Christian church. And interesting thing about Berenanosu, he was a very uh, staunch critic of the church over a lot of things. He even wrote, he would write little essays where he would talk about Martin Luther in positive terms because Luther was, you know, challenging the church on invalid points, you know, simony, you know, selling indulgences, selling uh, masses for uh, the dead, which, which was a racket in the 15th century, just an out-and-out racket. And uh, what we have is, Stan, Robert Coles has the only named review on the back. Yeah, Robert, the Robert Coles piece in The New Yorker on Berenanos is quite good. Uh, Cassocks? Okay. So priests being are being there in the sacramental system, priests are necessary to salvation in the world of Berenanos. And he saw France of the early 20th century as, as having, is losing its faith, having perhaps lost its faith, which put priests in, in the position of being, you know, the, the lack of respect for the priest, the priest, yeah, then the priest who compromised with modernity and comfortable bourgeois living. I mean, the first chapter of Diary of a Country Priest, which is admittedly is not the easiest chapter to get through because it's a long speech by an older priest to uh, the young priest of the hero, the heroine of the novel. But it's about uh, the state of the priesthood in post World War One France. Here are people who used to be the elite of France, who now are uh, objects of disrespect, objects of scorn, objects of derision. Uh, you know, France. The the turn that France took after the First World War was similar to the turn the United States took after World War II. If you look at mass attendance, compare that mass attendance from 19, say, 1940 to 1955 and 65, mass attendance fell in half across the United States. That had already happened in France. So the there was a lot of anger against the church and about its support of the monarchy, about its support for early fascism in the form of Mussolini and General Franco in Spain. And we're getting we're gonna get into that. Who's a heretic still? That's gotta be clear. Okay, so uh let's get into the biography. So he was born in 1888 in Paris, and he was uh he had a he had 
an, an idyllic. Now, I don't want to do this first. I want to do background first. But he had an idyllic childhood. Uh, but these are the things you need to have a little bit in your mind as you uh, think about Berenanos. First, how many of you have ever heard of the Franco-Prussian War of 1870 to 1871? Okay. I did, by the way, it is no crime not to know about that war. It is, you know, it's... it's but what ha here's what happened. You had the nephew of Napoleon, Napoleon III, who had arisen to lead what's called what was called the Second Republic of France. The First Republic began with the French Revolution and went from uh, 1789 all the way to uh, all the way to da, da, ba, ba, 1848 uh, and the second the second french republic was led by this napoleon the third and he then became so popular he was just promoted from president to king in other words the monarchy was restored by a guy who was a nephew of Napoleon. And here's the, think of the irony. They go through the French Civil War. They behead Louis XVI. They take Louis XVII and put him in a jail to literally rot to death. The young, the young man who is seven or eight years old. They put him, you know, in the deepest, darkest dungeon and just make him die of malnutrition. They cut off the head of Marie Antoinette. In other words, the point of the French Revolution was to destroy the monarchy. And also, in doing that, to destroy the influence of the Catholic Church over the state and the influence of the Catholic Church in French culture in general. And here, Fifty years later, they take a, a relative of General Bonaparte and promote him to king. It's called the Second French Empire, starting in 1852. So it's going to become clear that George Bernanos was a monarchist. He was a monarchist to the end of his life, even post-World War II. He felt the only way that France could ever return to its roots was through monarchy. He was anti-Republican. He was anti-democratic uh, rule. Uh, and But the reason I'm pointing this out is to show you that was not an unreasonable position at all. In you know, at, in even in the early 20th century, the desire for the monarchy you'll see, went, you know, went way into the 20th century in France. 
But in the Franco-Prussian War, uh, France declared war on Prussia. Prussia was Germany before Germany was unified. Over, literally over an insult uh, made by telegram between Otto von Bismarck and Louis III. I mean, it was just, it was like World War I. A totally unnecessary war. It was a war of nothing but pride, you know, nothing but, well, how dare uh, the Prussians try to decide who's going to be king of Spain, which is what prompted the war because the, you know, Prussia was growing in power. France had always been, had, had been for centuries, the European nation. If you think of France under the Sun King, under Louis XIV, I mean, France was the center of the civilized world. Its army, I mean, under Napoleon, it conquered all of Europe, I think all of it. And uh, if they hadn't acted stupidly in Russia, they probably would have owned it for for a while. but so France was a country in decline. Germany was rising up. Germany had always been 30 or 40 what were called duchies. They might have been under the Holy Roman Empire, but they were in no way a unified nation. It was this unnecessary war that made them a unified nation. It was Bismarck's opportunity to bring all these duchies and their armies together to smash France. Uh, Prussia humiliated France. It occupied, it put Paris under siege. It occupied uh, Paris. And the uh, peace treaty was, you know, they, they talk about how Heavy, uh, heavy the reparations were after the First World War and the Treaty of Versailles. The reparations after this 1871 war were just as harsh on France. It was so harsh that it brought down Napoleon III. His second empire was, I mean, his second empire was gone. So in 1871, you have a revolt in Paris called the Paris, Paris Commune. And how many of you ever heard of the three months long Paris Commune? I mean, this is really something that you'll find it. It was wild. You had uh, call them uh, ultra revolutionaries. Remember that they had just had another king for nearly twenty years who took them into a war. Where people were, you know, French, the French were slaughtered and humiliated. So these Republicans who probably never wanted the monarchy to be restored in the first place, they took over a part of Paris called Montparnasse. Have you, I mean, if you've ever been to Paris and you know where the Church of Saint Sulpice is, the Church of Saint Sulpice had not been built yet. Or it was being built, and but they took over a large swath of Paris, and just they barricaded it up, and went to war. 
and it was vicious and it was very anti-Catholic. I mean, priests were being were being killed. The Bishop of Paris, I believe, was killed. And uh, so you have the you know the violent resurgence uh, resurgence of the uh, the revolutionary crowd. Now, here's what's really interesting, especially to understand Baranos's commitment to the monarchy when the Third Republic was begun in 1871 with the with the fall of Napoleon III. Of all the political parties in France, the legislature, the, the legislature, the majority of representatives in the legislature were monarchists. So even after the uh, overthrow of Napoleon III, the humiliation uh, by the Prussians, the Paris Commune, you had a, a majority of elected French representatives, monarchists. This is in 1870. And remember, most of the monarchies in Europe were overthrown in 1848. You still had monarchy in Prussia, uh, Austria, Austria-Hungary, and in Russia. And they were going down with World War I, which was 1914 to 1980. 1918. So the background of the Prussian War, the the revival of monarchist uh, aspirations, and the two groups of monarchists in the legislature, they just fought over who they wanted to appoint as king, and they finally uh, settled on a guy, the count, the count of Cambour. But one condition, the Count of Cambor said he wanted to remove the tricolor flag, the red, white, and blue flag of the revolution that stood for freedom, equality, and liberté. He wanted that gone. The French people would not remove it. And so it ended up that... Be, over the his demand for the flag to be removed, he never was made king again. And so you had this sort of limping Republican uh, group who limped, you know, into the 20th century. How many of you have ever heard of the Dreyfus affair? Now, this is something that's important. Dreyfus was a Jewish captain of the French army, distinguished. But the anti-Semitism in the military and the anti-Semitism in France was so deep that they wanted a scapegoat for the defeat of their military. So some uh, officers inside the French army actually fabricated evidence that Dreyfus, the Jew, had given secrets, military secrets, to the Germans. It was all a setup. But I'm trying to help me think of a parallel in the United States 
this Dreyfus affair of whether or not he was guilty or not guilty, he was convicted, he was sent off to an island for many years, it became the sensation of France for a decade. Everybody had to take a position on Dreyfus for or against. I mean, if you were for Dreyfus, you were considered liberal and, and, and anti-market monarchist, pro-Jewish, uh, anti-military. If you were against Dreyfus, you were Catholic, you were Christian, you were pro-military, pro-French nationalism, uh, you know, pro pro-tradition, and the anti-Semitism was just, I mean, I, I, France even to this day is anti-Semitic. It's the only country I've ever been in where anti-Semitism was routinely expressed, even now. And this was a country who under Vichy, that is under the French, under the German op occupation, when the French uh, set up the Vichy government that, co you know, co cooperated with German occupation, sent a million French Jews into Germany to die and, and sent them as slave labor. You would think the very fact of the Holocaust would quash this anti-Semitism in France. So it is what it is. And the young Berninos was infected by it because he was brought up in a home where anti-Semitism was routinely uh, discussed and routinely and so forth. Now, a few more things about background. How, how many of you have ever read a novel by Balzac, Honoré de Balzac. You might have read Ogorio, you might have read Cousin Bet, you might have read Eugène Grandet, all of which have been serialized on BBC. You know, great serialization. And, uh, uh, but his project, which he called La Comédie Humaine, the human comedy, consisted of 91 works, novels, short stories, essays. He was the first novelist to completely try to expose the decadence and corruption of the French middle class and the French upper classes. I mean, to read Balzac is to read is to see the world through the eyes of a, of a very acute moralist who respected the church. He was not practicing Catholic. But when you read Balzac, you, you feel like you're in the presence of somebody who really, uh, you know, gets to the heart of the human condition. He gets, he gets there without an explicit faith, but he gets there. Now, the young Berninos would lie on the living room floor, and he read the entire uh, set of novels of the human comedy. This was his, Balzac was his inspiration to, to write. Along with another writer, Emile Zola, 
who was born 50 years, I mean, 40 years after Balzac. Balzac died in 1850. And Zola was 1940 to 1902. Uh, his, his group of novels was Godly, Rougon uh, McCart, 20 volumes, 20 novels. And he was super realistic. They called his style naturalism. You might have read Germinal. You might have read Therese Raquin. Uh, I mean, Zola isn't as rich and and uh, kind of uh, vibrant as Balzac, but his his concern for morality and social justice was just as uh, acute, and he was a huge defender of Dreyfus. He, uh, when he wrote, after he wrote a pamphlet defending Dreyfus, he had to actually leave Paris. His life was in danger. Now, in the background, a couple of other names. When, when uh, Berninos was in World War I, in the trenches of Verdun, in the trenches of the Somme, he discovered Leon Bois. Uh, Bois is spelled B-L-O-Y. How many of you have ever heard of Leon Bois? Now, just so you know, uh, on a number of occasions in the uh, 90s, late 90s, I met with Cardinal O'Connor in New York for various reasons. And Cardinal O'Connor was fluent in French. And I, I was carrying around a copy of the novel, The Woman Who Was Poor, which is his most famous work. And he, I showed it to him and he said, oh, my favorite novel. And I said, well, you can, here, I'll give it to you. No, no, I, I read in French. <laughs> and so just to give you an idea of Cardinal O'Connor's Someone like that feels that Bois and Bois, and Bois, who fought in the Franco-Prussian War, who wrote two sets of short, short stories about it, which are devastating, he was the genuine precursor to Berenice in this sense. His most famous saying was, there is only one tragedy in life, not to be a saint. He was the one that influenced the conversion of the young Jacques Maritain uh, and his wife, his Russian wife, Raisa Maritain. Uh, these two young non-believers, uh, these two young agnostics who had made a suicide pact that uh, within a year, if they didn't find the meaning of life, some sense of the absolute, they were going to commit suicide. It was a combination of Léon Bois and Henri Bergson, great philosopher at Sorbonne, the University of Paris, that saved them from that pact. Can you spell but, his last name again? I, I heard you say B-L- it. B-L-O-Y. Now, why is pronounced Bois? I have no idea. So it's not Bloy. Uh, another figure that impacted Berninos 
was Charles Peggy, P-E-G-U-Y. And by the way, why am I doing, why am I throwing all this out there? Because the French Catholic revival, intellectual literary revival, that began with Bois and Peggy is the revival that produced Francois Mauriac, that produced Jacques and Raisa Maritain, that produced George Bernanos, that produced this incredible flowering of French spirituality and literature and intellectual influence. You know, by the time of the First World War and the interwar years before the second, these Catholic uh, writers and intellectuals, professors, they had a huge influence in France, which they did not have before Bois and Peggy. So you're seeing a resurgence of Catholic intelligence, Catholic imagination, Catholic status in the, in the nation of France. And when, so, when is Bois, 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 is that how you say it? Bois was, was 18, 1846 to 1917, and Charles Peggy, 1873 to 1914. And he was someone very much admired by, admired by people like Dorothy Day. He was, uh, in a, uh, he was a convert. He converted in 1908, again, under the influence of Bois. And he uh, became a very renowned poet. Uh, his famous book of poetry is The Mystery of the Charity of Joan of Arc, available in translation and very well translated. And so here's a figure that predates Berenanos, and Berenanos' guiding light was Joan of Arc. And so was it was also Peggy's, even though Peggy and Bernanos would not agree on politics. They had great mutual. Well, he died in 1914. I should say Bernanos had lifelong respect for Peggy. Uh, I'll give you a couple of quotes. Uh, Peggy says, everything begins in mysticism and ends in politics. Another quote is, the sinner is at the very heart of Christianity. Nobody is so competent as the sinner in matters of Christianity. Nobody except the saint. Good one. I've already mentioned Jacques Maritain, who, along with one or two others, brought me into the church personally when I was 34. and. Maritain and his wife, Raisa, they ran something called the Maritain Circle in a little town outside Paris, a town called Moudon. And this went on for many years, which was only broken up by the Second World War, because Maritain, like a lot of French Catholic intellectuals, was on the list the Nazis brought into Paris to pick up and send to prison camps. You know, Simone Weil was on that list. Uh, Edith Stein up in Germany, up in Netherlands was on that list. Uh, and she did get captured and she did die at Auschwitz. 
So uh, Maritan was a Thomist, but he was also the, a great friend of artists. You would go to his weekend circle at Moudon. Stravinsky would be there. Uh, um, Cocteau would be there. French act composers and conductors like Pierre Montoux would be there. Uh, you would have all, all kind of young people being drawn into this Catholic revival, the spirit of this Catholic revival. And even Cocteau, who was flagrantly homosexual, became Catholic under the influence of the Maritans. And the way Jacques did this was he, he knew of Cocteau's love of beauty, love of dramatic. And if you've ever watched any of the films of Cocteau, nobody idealized beauty more than John Cocteau. It's a, such a treat to see his films. Uh, and he made one film that has the most beautiful woman that's ever been seen in film. He just absolutely created a goddess. Uh, well, anyway, so he brought in from the African desert uh, Charles de Foucault. Charles de Foucault is a very famous spiritual figure in the first half of the 20th century. He had very dark skin, and he wore all white, and he had he looked like Omar Sharif in his prime. In his prime, so he uh, Maritain made sure that Cocteau was in the living room when Foucault walked in, and that's after I think Cocteau converted a week later. It's because he was so overwhelmed by the beauty of this saint from the desert, Charles Foucault. Uh, now, now we're going to get serious. World War I, 1914, 1918, it's totally unnecessary war. I urge all of you to become familiar with the history of World War I. You really had the egos of Tsar Nicholas of or Nicholas II of Russia. This this World War I brought about the communist or the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. And it led to the death of the entire royal family, including the king, the queen, and the four beautiful, or was it five, daughters. They were just slaughtered in a basement. Uh, Wilhelm II, head of the uh, Prussian German state, the ancient uh, king of emperor of the Austro-Hungarian Empire who had been emperor for 50 years. Uh, again, the French. Uh, and if you recall, in 1914, the a uh, successor to uh, the emperor of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Look up his name real quick, Stan. What was his name? He was a Habsburg, the last Habsburg monarch. Uh, his nephew got shot 
and Sarajevo, which in itself was a comedy of errors. I mean, you read about that assassination on uh, the king, the king and queen. No, excuse me, the uh, uh, prince and his wife. They wouldn't let the Habsburg wouldn't allow the wife to be a princess. Does it sound familiar? Uh, and uh, were riding around the streets of Sarajevo. They had already been one assassination attempt that day. And uh, the prince deliberately said, no, we're going out in the streets again, regardless of this. The chauffeur took a wrong turn in Sarajevo. And the guy who had tried to assassinate them two hours earlier just happened to be standing on the curb happened to be standing on the curb. When the chauffeur took the wrong turn, it got stuck in traffic. So the guy uh, who had the gun and didn't, you know, didn't, uh, the shot went wild originally. He walks, you know, takes three steps and shoots him dead right there. Uh, and that that assassination of course, I mean, it was it happened in uh, not Serb, well, in in Yugoslavia, what we think of as Yugoslavia, Sarajevo, and it. There was no way. There's no reason why this should have started a world war. No reason whatsoever. But because the Austro-Hungarian Empire was trying to absorb Serbia. And the Russians, who had uh, a spiritual link to Serbia because they were all orth orthodox, thought of themselves as defending Serbia. Nicholas II did not want to go to war. But Austro-Hungarian Empire had Germany, the German Empire under Wilhelm II, behind them, defending you know, that heritage. And so it became, if you read a step-by-step -step account, like a two-week account of the, and all these guys were cousins, Nicholas II, Wilhelm II, and George V of England, they were all cousins descending from Queen Victoria. They went on summer vacations together. You know, Wilhelm, who loved military uniforms, would go over to England and, you know, try, you know, and put, you know, have himself handmade all the military uniforms of Great Britain. And Tsar Nicholas, too, they would meet on a boat, you know, out in the uh, North Sea in the summer. So they're sending telegrams back and forth and saying, let's not go to war, let's not go to war, but don't do this, or we're going to have to mobilize the army and so forth. And so when Austro-Hungary, you know, decided to actually invade Serbia, uh, Tsar Nicholas mobilized his army. And he had an army of like 10 million, 10 million. That meant that Prussia had to mobilize, France had to mobilize, England had to mobilize. And all of a sudden, you have this war that could have been avoided. Now, this, this, apart from spiritual issues, 
been talking an hour. I'm so sorry. I apologize. Uh, but I want to give you guys a sense of the richness of the cultural background. Uh, this was the first war that was mechanized. This was the machine gun. This was the mortar. This was the entrenched artillery that could fire for a mile. First time. So what you imagine this, imagine this. France, when it mobilized its army, one third of it was on a horseback. It was cavalry. And so you had French cavalry riding into machine entrenched machine guns up on a hill and mortars and artillery. They were just slaughtered. But the French commanders would send the cavalry back in. The same thing with the, with the soldiers in the trenches. Yeah, on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, the English had fifth first day, and in first 20 minutes, most of this happened because they were sent out of the trenches up a hill against entrenched German positions. 57,000 casualties, 57,000. And the commander of the British kept sending them out wave after wave, even though, even though they could see them get slaughtered. I don't know if you saw the recent film, 1917, which was a great account of the First World War, or the, the film made uh, by the director of... Uh, Lord of the Rings, what's his name? Peter Jackson. He made a documentary of They Shall Not Grow Old because his great, either his grandfather or great grandfather died in World War I. So he did a tribute. Great documentary. So Berninos, who had already served in the army at the age of 20 and 21, he volunteered to go back into common, volunteered to go back with his own unit to fight in World War I. He was in the trenches at both the Somme and Verdun. Now, what you have to put your arms around is that this war where people come out, of, go over the top, they called it, out of the trenches, and they would go up this the hill toward the entrenched German positions. Uh, it changed the the Western culture and civilization permanently. I'm not I'm not just talking about European changed world culture. Remember, there was a battle on the on the. Eastern Front between Germany and Russia, which led to Lenin's, Trotsky's, and Stalin's Bolshevik Revolution. Why? Same reason Napoleon III went down, because they put French, French citizens in harm's way for nothing, for total nonsense. And if you it's really interesting if you look at the films of 
the first month of the mobilization of, of the French, the British, the uh, Austro-Hungarians, the uh, Prussians and Russians, they celebrated going to war. They were like bands and, and women in the street throwing flowers. In other words, this was a war they wanted. They wanted the glory. See, they were still living in the world of national glory, the Napoleonic mentality, that what great nations do is conquer or defend. And then they watch the young men. There were 10 million deaths in World War I of soldiers and civilians on the Allied side. There were another 15 million deaths on the German-Austrian side. And the... Uh, the British brought cavalry too. I mean, would you send a cavalry charge up a hill against one mile entrenched of machine guns, mortars, artillery, and just good old with barbed wire? Barbed wire. If you've ever seen the movie War Horse, it's about one of the horses. That was taken into World War One. It's heartbreaking, isn't it, Stan? Beautiful and heartbreaking. But this horse survives. So. Uh, the world, the Western world's confidence in itself, in its Christian roots, in its humanist roots, going back to Greece and Rome, the height of civilization what cathedrals stood for, what their universities stood for, their schools of medicine, their political institutions. You know, Goethe in Germany, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky in Russia, right? Manzoni in Italy, right? And Dante in, in Italy. Francis Balzac, Francis, I mean, Racine, the, the playwright. Zola, all of their great, the art world, the world of Louis XIV, the Sun King, Versailles itself, and in England, you know, the great traditions of Oxford, Cambridge. In fact, the first groups that would that joined the army were Oxford and Cambridge students, the sons of the elite, and they were massacred. You, if, you, if you've never read the great war poetry of uh, Wilfred Owen, Sigrid Sassoon, Isaac Rosenberg, partic particularly Owen, you must read it. You will experience the war, that war from the inside. Inside. Uh, and Owen was killed four days before the armistice. And he, by the way, could he was he he had a, a overall mer, uh, tra trauma breakdown. He was sent to a, uh, a hospital in England 
where he met Sigrid Sassoon, who was also already an established poet. And Sassoon, there's a good movie about this, by the way, Owen and Sassoon. And it was Sassoon who gave Owen the confidence to publish his poetry. So here he is with this, you know, this stack of what have now become classic poetry. Sassoon says, let's get it published. And then Owen didn't have to go back to the trenches. Didn't have to, but he went. Why? Glory, nobility, honor. Bernanos, his experience of one, one writer put it, Verdun became Berlinos's cross. He started losing his faith. It was, he, this is where his, you might call it bourgeois Catholic upbringing, was changed from a deep appreciation to an all-or-nothing passion. Okay. How old is he at this time? He's in his uh, early, th- uh, late 20s. Because he didn't publish his first great novel until, I think, age 34 in 1926. So his first great novel came out seven years after the end of the war. So one, one more thing on the background. I can't believe I've been talking this long in the middle of the night in Scotland. But anyway, let me, let me have a little sip of my iron brew, which is their soda pop. It's their Coca-Cola. It's absolutely delicious. Iron brew, I recommend it. Mm. So, how many of you heard of the Spanish Civil War? Okay. The Spanish Civil War began in 1936 and last 1939. And basically, here's what happened. The monarchy of Spain had gone down in 1931. It was... Eliminate <clears throat> a Republican government that is a uh, an elected group of people took over. But the Republican government was leftist. It was influenced by Marx, and uh, it was an- anti-Catholic Church, anti the influence of the church. There became a uh, a battle between two factions. One was a group that didn't think the Republican government was radical enough. They were called the Republicans or the Popular Front. Uh, they were opposed by the nationalists who were anti-Republican, like Bernanos, it was a coalition of monarchists, conservatives, traditionalists, and military figures, especially Francisco Franco. And they, they claimed to represent the Catholic Church. And so at the beginning of this war between Franco's group and the Republican group, the, the Vatican came down explicitly on the side of Franco because it claimed... And it did. It had most of the church figures behind it. That is, 
this was a group that wasn't going to restore the monarchy, but it was going to restore Spain to being a Christian nation. Now, originally, uh, Bernanos would have been sympathetic with that. He would have been sympathetic with General Franco, you know, surrounded by priests and bishops and cardinals, supported by the Vatican, going to bring back the, you know, family values and so forth. But by then, Bernanos, because he was so poor, I'll get into that maybe the next time, (laughs) uh, had moved to an island off the Spanish coast of Mallorca with his family. I think by then he had four kids. And what he saw was that these this group called the Nationalists, led by Franco, was committing genocide all over Spain in the name of the church. I mean, just lining people up for no reason and shooting them, leaving them in stack. Now, there was genocide on the other side, too. But the other side didn't claim to be Christian or religious. So all this, I mean, it's really a horrible story. Was witnessed by a number of people. Uh, Hemingway was him. You see, a lot of Americans went over and fought for the Republicans. Hemingway, uh, Brit George Orwell went and fought for the Republicans. But they all came back after witnessing the genocide on both sides. I mean, you remember Guernica. Guernica, the painting by Picasso of the bombing of the town of Guernica. It's very, these were German planes, okay. Franco's group had enlisted the military support of Germany in the form of supplies, but also of aircraft. And at some point, the German aircraft flew over a town called Guernica and bombed it into rubble. It had no military significance whatsoever. Picasso's famous painting of Guernica is probably the best-known event in in the Spanish Civil War. So Bernanos broke with his conservative monarchist friends, broke with the church over it, On top of this, and this, I find this so hard to uh, embrace, Mussolini, the fascist Mussolini, Franco was a fascist. You know, he took over Italy, I believe, in the late 20s. And he really did, at the beginning, clean up Italy. Italy was just a land of gangs and corruption. But then, Mussolini led his army over to Ethiopia and invaded it on the grounds that ancient Romans owned North Africa on the ground. We're going to go get, we're going to get our empire back. I mean, so he goes over there and invades with, think of it, with the mechanized army of World War I. He goes over there and conquers 
the, the country of Haile Selassie and the Ethiopians. The Vatican applauds it. Why? Taking Christianity back to Muslim. Of course, the Coptic Christians over there were the oldest existing Christian sect in the world. They're still being persecuted. And so the Vatican applauded this while they're applauding Franco's fascist war. And Bernanos, who might have, you know, he had his flaws, deep flaws. He wasn't buying it because he had seen the slaughter. He had seen the hypocrisy. To summarize, here's the Bernanosian background. A wounded France over the Franco-Prussian War, trying to win its honor back. The struggle between Republicans and monarchists. These, the I haven't even gotten into the organization called Action Française. I'm not going to do it now. The the uh, creation of realism and naturalism in French literature. That is the moral vision. The French Catholic revival of Bois and Peggy, and the how World War I changed everything in terms of confidence in being a West, you know, a member of Western Christian civilization. Now, poor Dido. Yeah, that's right. Dido stood upon a wild sea bank and waft her love to come again to Carthage. Shakespeare. Uh, so I've been talking almost an hour and a half. I'm so embarrassed. I'm sorry. Give me some questions. Somebody give me some questions. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. To learn more, way more by becoming a fellow today visit magnusinstitute.org copyright 2022 albertus magnus institute incorporated all rights reserved